Welcome to Saturday evening Torah class, an in-depth interdisciplinary study of the Hebrew scriptures. Tonight's lesson is week number 13, Leviticus chapters 10 and 11. We're going to continue this evening with the story of um, Aaron's children, Moses' nephews, Nadav uh, Nadav and uh, Abihu. And Nadav and Abihu were priests who immediately following the consecration ceremony of the priesthood into operation were engaged in a ritual at the tabernacle when suddenly fire went forth from the Lord his glory was in the tabernacle at that moment and it cremated those two men. Now the question I asked before we concluded the last lesson is what could have provoked Jehovah to do something so severe? And I have no doubt that from Moses to Aaron to the elders of the tribe to the tribal leaders and the ordinary Israelites by the thousands that were looking on at this they were startled and bewildered as to just what took place before their very eyes. Let's reread Leviticus 10 where this all takes place because we barely got into it last time. Leviticus chapter 10. But Nadab and Abihu, sons of Aharon, each took his censer, put fire in it, laid incense on it, and offered unauthorized fire before Adonai, something he had not ordered them to do. And at this fire came forth from the presence of Adonai and consumed them, so that they died in the presence of Adonai. Moses said to Aaron, this is what Adonai said, through those who are near me, I will be consecrated. And before all the people, I will be glorified. Aaron kept silent. Moses called Mishael and Elzaphan, sons of Uziel, Aaron's uncle, and told them, come here, carry your cousins away from in front of the sanctuary to a place outside the camp. And they approached and carried them in their tunics out of the camp, as Moses had said. And then Moses told Aaron and his sons, Eleazar and Ithamar, don't unbind your hair or tear your clothes in the morning, right, so that you won't die, so that Adonai won't be angry with the entire community. Rather, let your kinsmen, the whole house of Israel, mourn because of the destruction Adonai brought about with his fire. Moreover, don't leave the entrance to the tent of meeting or you will die because Adonai's anointing oil is on you. Adonai said to Aharon, don't drink any wine or other intoxicating liquor, neither you nor your sons with you when you enter the tent of meeting, so that you will not die. This is to be a permanent regulation throughout all your generations, so that you will distinguish between the holy and the common, between the unclean and the clean, so that you will teach the people of Israel the laws Adonai has told them through Moses. Moses said to Aaron and to Eleazar and Ithamar's remaining sons, Take the grain offering left from the offerings for Adonai made by fire and eat it without leaven next to the altar because it's especially holy. Eat it in a holy place because it is your and your son's share of the offerings for Adonai made by fire for this is what I have been ordered. The breast that was waved and the thigh that was raised you are to eat in a clean place you, your sons and your daughters with you for these are given as your and your children share of the sacrifices of the peace offerings presented by the people of Israel. 
there to bring the raised thigh and the waved breast along with the offerings of fat made by fire and wave it as a wave offering before Adonai then it will belong to you and your descendants with you as your perpetual share as Adonai has ordered then Moses carefully investigated what had happened to the goat of the sin offering and discovered that it, it had been burned up he became angry with Eleazar and Ithamar the remaining sons of Aaron and asked why didn't you eat the sin offering Right, in the area of the sanctuary since it's especially holy. He gave it to you to take away the guilt of the community to make atonement for them before Adonai. Look, its blood wasn't brought into the sanctuary. You should have eaten it there in the sanctuary as I ordered. Aaron answered Moses, even though they offered their sin offering and burnt offering today, things like these have happened to me. Right? If I had eaten that sin offering today, would that have pleased Adonai? On hearing this reply, Moses was satisfied. God, knowing all men's thoughts, wasted not one second in letting Aaron and all those in attendance and all those of us who would be told later about this astounding tragedy just what precipitated it all. And Moses pronounces it to Aaron in verse 3 of chapter 10 it says Moses says to Aaron it is what the Lord spoke saying by those who come near me I will be treated as holy and before all the people I will be honored so Aaron therefore kept silent now while this may appear on the surface to have been kind of a procedural violation that provoked Jehovah to such wrath as to snuff out the life of two of Aaron's sons. In fact, it was because they treaded on the one thing that God will never allow to be violated. His holiness. Jehovah says, I will be treated as holy. Right? And especially so by those who have been authorized to come near to me. Okay? And those who have been honored to serve publicly in a position like a priest must be held to a higher standard so that before all the people I will be honored okay. if the priests showed disdain and carelessness in, what, in their worship what were the common folk going to do right. in verse 4 we find that Moses has the cousins of Nadav and Afahu remove their dead bodies from the tabernacle area actually they were taken to an area described as outside the camp now, priests are generally prohibited from touching corpses, although when it involved certain relatives, it was permitted. The high priest could never touch a dead body, not even that of his wife or of his parents or his own children. Should a priest contact a dead body, he instantly became defiled, impure. Right? And he had to go through a lengthy purification procedure to once again become clean and then able to resume the duties of his priestly office. Now, under normal circumstances, it would have fallen to Aaron's two younger sons, Eleazar and Ithamar, right, to deal with the bodies of their brothers. Right? However, since they too had just been consecrated as priests, it would have been inappropriate at these inaugural sacrifices for them to become defiled by contact with the dead. So that grisly duty felt fell to Mishael and El Zafan, their cousins. Now, 
moving the deceased to a place outside the camp was a normal thing. Dead bodies couldn't be anywhere within the camp of Israel. They couldn't remain there, lest they defile the camp and those who might accidentally come into contact with the grave. And a good rule to remember when reading scripture is that of all the ways one could become ritually unclean, there was no more serious and severe one than to come into contact with death. Okay, so it was avoided wherever possible. Now, verses 6 and 7 basically tell Aaron and his two surviving sons that they may not participate in the customary mourning of the dead procedures. In fact, they're told that if they do mourn their kin's passage, they'll be struck dead as well. Okay. And because they're priests, and therefore they represent the entire nation of Israel, the whole community will be subject to God's wrath if those two men join in the bereavement. Now, does this all sound a little bit severe to you? Okay. I mean, what happened to the God who mercifully rescued these people from the hand of Pharaoh? Okay. Where is the forgiveness that enabled Aaron and his sons to become priests, even though not much earlier they had built and celebrated that golden calf? How does a God who values life so much take life away in an instant of judgment and divine punishment? Well, this is the side of God's attributes that we'd really rather not talk about. This is the side of God's characteristics that have been pushed to the back by a very well-meaning clergy who want to see God's mercy and loving kindness pushed forward so that more people will be attracted to him. And, and this is the side of, the God, of God that, frankly, much of the church today say, says doesn't even exist anymore. Okay? That it was an Old Testament dispensation. That in the New Testament dispensation, the God of the New Testament somehow has left his wrath and judgment behind. The God that we're told over and over never changes, changed. Well, it goes without saying that what we read in the Bible are but the tiniest snippets of all that went on among the Hebrews during those 14 centuries and the hundreds of Bible characters that passed by in the Holy Scriptures. So we ought to take with utmost seriousness these things that are recorded for us because they're there to teach us something important. So after we just look now at this jarring account of God's judgment in the Old Testament, let's just see if that same attribute of God is alive and well, or if indeed, many are right, it is a thing of the past once we enter the New Testament times. Turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 4. We're going to start reading at verse 32 and continue reading on into chapter 5. We'll end up with about verse 11 of chapter 5. Acts 4. All the many believers were one in heart and soul, and no one claimed any possessions of his, uh, of his possessions for himself, but everyone shared everything he had. 
With great power, the emissaries continued testifying to the resurrection of the Lord Yeshua, and they were all held in high regard. No one among them was poor, since those who owned land or houses sold them and turned over the proceeds to the emissaries to distribute to each one according to his need. Thus, Joseph, whom the emissaries called Barnabah, a Levite and a native of Cyprus, sold a field which belonged to him and brought the money to the emissaries. But there was a man named uh, Hanayah who with his wife Shepherah sold some property. And with his wife's knowledge they withheld some of the proceeds for himself even though he did bring the rest to the emissaries. Then Kepha, Peter, said why has the adversary so filled your heart that you lie to the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit, and keep back some of the money that you received for that land? Before you sold it, the property was yours. And after you sold it, the money was yours to do with as you please. So what made you decide to do such a thing? You've lied not to human beings, but to God. On hearing these words, Hanayah fell down dead. And everyone who heard about it was terrified. The young men got up, wrapped his body in a shroud, and carried him out and buried him. Some three hours later, his wife came in, unaware of what had happened. Peter challenged her, tell me, is it true that you sold the land for such and such a price? And yes, she answered, that is what we were paid for it. But Kiva came back at her. Then why did you people plot to test the spirit of the Lord? Listen, the men who just buried your husband are at the door. They're going to carry you out too. Instantly she collapsed at his feet and died. The young men entered, found her there dead, carried her out, and buried her beside her husband. Here we have an account of two people dying as a direct judgment of Jehovah. He killed them. They weren't put to death by any earthly authority. And it all seems to have come as a surprise to the apostles and the disciples that were present. Let us remember that by all accounts, Ananias and Sapphira were believers they were Jews who had come to believe that Jesus was their Savior and Lord. There is nothing here that says that they were pretenders or that they had only fooled themselves into thinking they were believers. So Ananias and Sapphira, husband and wife, were Christians. The Holy Spirit lived within them just like with all their other Christian brothers and sisters. What happened here? Simply, they wanted to join in the spirit of what everybody else was doing by selling some property they owned and giving the proceeds to those believers who were needy. And they were certainly sincere about it. Because guess what? They did sell the property. And they did bring the proceeds to the church leadership. Although, they did tell a little white lie and they held some of it back for themselves. Now let's stop here for a second and ponder this. Even Peter says, they sold property that was rightfully theirs. 
They kept a little for themselves and gave the rest, apparently the lion's share, to the church. True enough, it wasn't 100% of the proceeds, but it was without doubt a very generous thing to do. Now tell me something. How many here would sell their house and give every penny to the church? How many here would sell a very valuable piece of property and give 90% to the church? It would appear on the surface, then, that the issue was not about generosity. It was that Ananias and Sapphira lied about it. And that is what precipitated God's death sentence upon them. Or, was that really the deal? How often in the Bible do we see people killed by God for the sin of telling a lie? Had not Peter lied and denied Yeshua himself three times? He wasn't killed. In fact, the Torah doesn't even call for physical death for the sin of telling a lie. Not even lying to God. So why here in Acts, in the New Testament where the God of wrath has supposedly been replaced by the God of love, do we find him killing these two people? Okay. Well, here's where we get to put to work some things we've recently learned. When an Israelite brought his sacrificial animal or his offering, his tithe, whatever, to the tabernacle and presented it to God, that property or that animal at that moment became God's property. In the sacrificial system, it formally became God's property upon the act of Senachah, laying hands on that animal's head to signify that that animal was indeed the offering and that it was being turned over to, to Yehovah. From a spiritual standpoint, when did the transfer of ownership that animal from the worshiper to God actually occur. Later, rabbis would say that it was at the moment when the worshiper entered the temple grounds with the animal that it became God's property. Be that as it may, the term the Bible uses for offerings to Yehovah is holy property. We've discussed holy property a little bit. And we have also been shown that to violate God's holy property is a very serious matter. Now the key to this is that Yehovah deemed holy property as itself being holy. When Ananias and Sapphira determined to sell the property and give all the money to the Lord at that moment, it had become holy property. Just as an Israelite didn't have to bring a certain animal for a sacrifice, that is, in some cases, the species of animal was, within certain limits, the worshiper's choice. And in other cases, exactly which animal from his flock would have been his choice. Ananias and Sapphira were under no obligation to sell their property and to donate the money. Okay? It was purely their idea and their choice. But once they made that choice, the situation changed. Once they began the process, 
and they sold the property and had the money in hand, there was an important element of holiness added to the whole thing. Because at some point in the process, this became God's property. We would say they held back some of their money from God. Wrong. Once it became holy property, it was all his. They had no right to any of it because it wasn't theirs anymore. What God chose to do with his property was his prerogative. What they did, their crime was they robbed God. It was his property. They took some for themselves. They partook of God's holy property and this is a blatant violation of God's holiness and they paid for it with their lives. Now it certainly seems that Ananias and Sapphira were held to awfully high and strict standards, doesn't it? Well, of course they were. Because as believers of Messiah Yeshua, they were near to God. Remember what we read about the problem with Nadab and Abihu? He says, people that are near me will treat me as holy. Peter said in 1 Peter 4.17 Judgment begins with the household of God. James said in James 3.1 We who teach are going to be judged with a lot greater strictness. And Jesus said in Luke 12.48 Everyone to whom much is given of him much is going to be required. Then there is this in 1 Peter 2.9 but you are a chosen people. You are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God that you may declare the praises of Him who called you out of darkness into this wonderful light. In essence, Ananias and Sapphira held the same status before God that Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, did. They were as priests. Ananias and Sapphira were as common priests for the high priest Yeshua. Okay. Just as Nadab and Abihu were common priests for the high priest Aaron. And as the priests were near to God, put into a special position of proximity and of association with Yehovah, Nadab and Abihu were allowed to enter into Yehovah's presence the wilderness tabernacle as only priests could. Ananias and Sapphira had God's presence living within them. Only those made priests through trust in Yeshua could have such a thing. And when any of these violated God's holiness it was without excuse. And because they were all so privileged To be near God, they also bore far more responsibility than people who weren't. This is not allegory. This is a critically important God principle that's established in the Torah and is naturally continued right on through the New Testament. Now, why have I spent so much time dealing with this? Because it affects you and me. It applies precisely to us. We are in the same position as Ananias and Sapphira. No one in all the world is in a better or higher or nearer position before God 
than a believer. And no one is in a position of more responsibility before God. No one is held to a higher standard before God than you and me as believers. But, and this is the difficult part, we, all of us who confess trust in Yeshua, are also in a position to violate God's holiness like no one else can. And the penalty for doing that can be of the severest nature. Yet we modern Christians typically think nothing of it. We choose to think about just how much we can gain or we can prosper from being near our God. Grace in our day now means there's no further need for obedience. Worship now means sitting and observing somebody performing. Salvation now means we can't actually offend Jehovah anymore. And if we should, there's no consequence. Righteousness now means that we will be shown as individuals what is right and wrong. That God's laws and commands are now different for different people. Freedom in Christ now means we have the choice of whether to live out a God-ordained lifestyle or to simply live as the rest of the world does with Yeshua added to the mix. Nothing in the world, not from word, from Genesis to Revelation, validates that line of thinking. Okay. Yet, even if those premises aren't outright stated, it is the de facto mode of operation for too much of modern Christianity. Apparently, Ananias and Sapphira had that exact same mindset. Now, as I studied and prayed over this lesson, right at the end, some words of wisdom fell on me like a hammer on an anvil. And it was this. Come out of her, my people. Come out of her, my people. That's why I read that letter to you to start off this class. Come out of her, my people. But listen to the whole verse where that was Quoted, Jeremiah 51.45 Come out of her, my people, and run for your lives. Run from the fierce anger of God. God's anger is going to rain down upon this earth. And any nation or congregation that's decided to place their faith in doctrines instead of the word of God is going to be subject to that anger. Jeremiah has warned us to run from it. And in verse 8, we now encounter a rarity for Leviticus. God speaks directly to Aaron. Normally, anything God wants Aaron to be told goes through Moses. So what should we take from this? That what God has to say to Aaron, he wants to have very special emphasis. Anyone who's ever worked for a relatively small company understands this methodology. That is, the big boss usually speaks to his employees through the second in command. And part of the reason to do this is because on those rare occasions when the big boss does speak directly to an employee, the employee is really going to pay attention. And the event, and the event is usually accompanied with some amount of fearfulness. Now, considering that what Yehovah is about to speak to Aaron is coming very quickly after this horrifying death 
of Aaron's first and second born sons, you can bet Aaron was all ears right about now. And what Aaron is told is that prior to performing his or her priestly function, okay, no priest should drink any intoxicating beverage. In Hebrew, this is the word yayin, right, which is typically used in conjunction with the word shkar. Yayin means wine. Shkar means strong, intoxicating drink. Yayin, wine, is exactly what we think of when we think of wine. It's fermented grapes with a relatively small alcohol content. Shkar refers to wine that's been allowed to ferment a whole bunch longer. Right? And so has a lot higher alcohol content. And it also refers to beers and ales that are made from grain. Okay. This instruction not to drink alcohol is specifically linked to the functions whereby the priests must enter the tabernacle's sanctuary, the Mishkan, right? the tent of meeting. Now, was this a new law that countermanded, countermanded all previous directives? After all, much of the ceremony and ritual that God has recently ordered involved the use of wine to some small degree. No, this is not a new and different order. It's just an instruction to the priesthood that they're to be fully sober in undertaking all of their priestly duties before God. Now, so does this mean that there actually may be a connection between what happened to Nadab and Abihu, Aaron's sons, and drunkenness? Perhaps. Perhaps. Okay. One would have to assume something, though, that's not completely and plainly stated in Scripture, but it's possible that Nadab and Abihu were drinking and they hadn't been thinking straight when they approached the Lord in an unauthorized manner, bringing, as they call, strange incense, strange fire, all right. Now, it is known that priests of many of the world's pagan religions get liquored up pretty good before they start their duties. Okay. So perhaps this instruction is to make clear that none of this is to happen with any of the followers of Jehovah. I think this has a lot to do with God making it abundantly clear to these priests, including the high priest, that they had no latitude in their rituals. The smallest deviation from God's explicit commands could be met with the severest discipline. Therefore, the idea being expressed to Aaron is that clear-headedness and attention to detail was necessary, not just to keep the potential violator from, from some gruesome death at the hands of the Creator, but because the priesthood had some very important duties to perform for the benefit of the people of Israel. Now, without going back over again the deaths of Aaron's two sons, let's remember what Jehovah said was the real problem with what Nadav and Abihu had committed. In verse 3 he said, And before all the people I will be glorified. Priests were teachers as well as officiators of the rituals. And even more, they were near God. And the word makes it clear that far more than words, it's the actions 
of the teacher that affected their followers. What the student observed his teacher doing was likely to be what the student would emulate. Now further, it was the priest's job, and let me go so far as to say it was their most important duty to, as it says in verse 10, distinguish between the sacred and the common, between the clean and the unclean. And while often the distinction was a very simple matter, at other times it wasn't so easy. The priest carried a very great responsibility and so soberness of thought in the service of the king of the universe was necessary to avoid his wrath due to some type of careless error, especially when it endangered his holiness. And I suspect most people in this room have at some time in their life gotten a little tipsy. And even though that may have been a long time ago for some of you, you undoubtedly remember you don't have to be blind drunk to start making compromise and making unwise judgments that you wouldn't normally make if you had been drinking heavily or doing drugs. Now, so what's so key to grasp so as we don't lose the context is that those who were actively doing something in the service of the Lord, pastoring, teaching, leading, ministering, I don't care what it is, shouldn't drink intoxicating beverages prior to starting that activity because you're representing him. And your carelessness could not only cause you to do something that's offensive to God, which is dangerous to his holiness and your well-being, it could cause others to believe that such carelessness is okay. Now, I must also make clear, though, that this is in no way an instruction that you can't drink wine or some other alcoholic beverage. In fact, the whole Bible, from beginning to end, makes it clear that yayin, wine, is a gift from God. Do you know that? In the Bible, wine is symbolic of what? Joy. Not drunkenness. It is most certainly appropriate in moderate quantities during certain ceremonies and occasions to lighten the mood. Yet, downright drunkenness is never approved. Primarily because it affects decision making. And especially for those who are near to God, like you and me, but priests in the Old Testament days, we are to be a lot more careful than those who are not near to God. Because the standard we bear is a whole lot higher. Now, beginning in verse 12, Moses is more or less going over a checklist of what the priests should have been doing. Considering what just transpired with Aaron's sons, it was probably a pretty good idea about this point. Now, Moses was making sure that the minka offering, the grain offering, was, that, that ritual for it was completed, as it was supposed to be. That in this case, the dough was to be unleavened. It was to be eaten by the priests in the courtyard of the tabernacle, or more literally, beside the altar, meaning beside the brazen altar. And a couple of things are being communicated here. First, it is that the incident involving Nadav and Abihu hasn't changed anything. The rituals and the procedures remain the same. Second is that Aaron and his sons, his remaining sons, the ones that are still alive, 
still bear the office of priests. This has not been taken from them. Next, more of the bird offerings are discussed and reminders are made of just how these rituals are to be performed. And we're not going to go there because we've already discussed these particular rituals in some detail in prior lessons. Now, interestingly, beginning in verse 16, when Moses inquired about the status of the purification offering, the hatat, he got quite angry. Because as he feared the carelessness that Nadab and Abihu had displayed and paid the ultimate price for it, rubbed off on Eleazar and Ithamar, Aaron's two remaining sons, and they were going to do something similar, but apparently not quite as serious. They ate the meat of the Hata'at offering in an improper manner. They were supposed to eat it only inside the sacred precinct, that is, within the courtyard of the tabernacle, but instead they ignored God's specific command and ate it elsewhere. Why weren't they destroyed for this violation? I don't know. Okay. Paul in nine, Romans 9.15 quotes directly from Exodus 33 when he attempts to answer a very similar question in Romans 19 for he Jehovah says to Moses I will have mercy on whom I'll have mercy I'll have compassion on whom I will have compassion we're simply in no place to question God's decisions on these matters okay? he decided it's his prerogative to decide that's that now one final issue and we'll move on to chapter 11 at the end of chapter 10, verses 19 and 20, we get this somewhat difficult to decipher conversation between Aaron and Moses in which Aaron talks about what has befallen him. Tragedy. And if he and his sons had eaten the Hata'at in the manner that was commanded, would Jehovah have approved it with the rhetorical unanswered thing or would he have burned us up too? And it seems like a rather odd question. After all, the question seems to be, well, if I had performed the hot to odd and eaten the meat in the manner required, would that have been acceptable to God? It's like he didn't know. But that's not really what's meant here. Okay. So what was this about? It was common for Hebrew families in mourning not to eat food for a time. Okay. In this case, the matter was, partic was particularly problematic because what was involved wasn't just ordinary food, it was holy food. Because it was the portion specifically set apart for the priests from God's holy property. Apparently the priests felt they were caught between a rock and a hard place. Do they eat the hot dog portion of the meat assigned to them? Or do they not eat it because of the death of their family members and the required mourning rituals? Which one do they do? Okay. Now, they most certainly chose wrongly because they were not told because they were told not to mourn for their charboiled kin. Right? But for his own reasons, right, Moses seemed to be understanding of the dilemma, and God accepted Moses' determination that the priests weren't going to bear any disciplinary action for this misadventure. Now I need to point out that Aaron asked would the Lord approve? And then we're told that it was Moses who answered the question. Remember, Moses was unique in all Bible history. Moses spoke for God. 
If Moses spoke it, it was as if God spoke it. And that is not tradition. That's a direct scriptural instruction from Jehovah. Let's move on to uh, chapter 11. We'll get just a little ways into it tonight. Leviticus chapter 11. And I think we'll read all the first six or eight verses. Adonai said to Moshe and Aharon, Tell the people of Israel, These are the living creatures which you may eat from among all the land animals. Any that has a separate hoof, which is completely divided and chews the cud, these animals you can eat. But you're not to eat those that only chew the cud or only have a separate hoof. For example, the camel, the coney, the hare are unclean for you because they chew the cud but they don't have a separate hoof. While the pig is unclean for you, because though it has a separate and completely divided hoof, it doesn't chew the cud. You are not to eat meat from these or touch their carcasses. They are unclean for you. Of all the things that live in the water, you may eat these. Anything in the water that has fins and scales, whether in seas or in rivers, these you may eat. These you may eat, but everything in the seas and rivers without both fins and scales, of all the small water creatures, of all the living creatures in the water, it's a detestable thing for you. Yes, these will be detestable for you. You're not to eat their meat. You're not to detest, and you are to detest their carcasses. Whatever lacks fins and scales in the water is a detestable thing for you. Okay. Chapter 11 is the beginning of a new section of Leviticus that the Lord has been setting the stage for since the 20th chapter of Exodus. Because beginning with Leviticus 11 and continuing through chapter 16, we get the laws of ritual purity laid out for us. Fittingly, it all starts with the laws of diet. What in Hebrew is called kashrut. We know it more generically as kosher eating. Now in the previous chapter, chapter 10, verse 10, we're told that perhaps the primary duty of the priesthood is to distinguish between the holy and the common, between the clean and the unclean. You'll recall that that statement was made in the context of not drinking wine immediately before performing priestly duties because clear-mindedness was necessary for proper discernment and for good judgment lest Jehovah's holiness be violated and his divine retribution be the result. Now before we read any more of chapter 11, I want to make a few points. There is nothing of more paramount importance in the lifestyle that Jehovah has ordained for Israel than purity and holiness. That's the crux of it. And he sums up why this is, as we will read next week, in verse 45 of chapter 11. I am Jehovah who brought you up from the land of Egypt to be your God. Therefore, you're to be holy because I'm holy. The Torah calls for a holy and pure lifestyle as defined by God for the people of Israel. 
There is absolutely no doubt that the Torah was given to Israel and nobody else. All of these laws and commands and rituals and sacrifices weren't just for everyone. They were reserved for Israel. Now, before some of you get too concerned about that last statement, please understand that there is more to that simplistic comment than meets the eye. For example, foreigners were certainly allowed to join Israel. And a foreigner who officially joined Israel was considered an Israelite. Yehovah didn't create two classes of Israelites, the natural born and the adopted. All were considered equal in his eyes. All were to operate under the same covenants and same justice system. And this principle applies directly to our condition as Gentiles and our relationship with Israel in New Testament times. Okay, so as I have addressed a believer's relationship with Israel on many occasions in this class, and will undoubtedly do so again, for now, just please take at face value the truth that Torah was given to Israel as a specifically set apart and chosen people. And that Romans 11 states clearly and emphatically that Gentile believers have been grafted into Israel. So on a spiritual level, believers, Gentile foreigners, have become one with Israel. Now one of the things that we'll delve into is whether or not kosher eating was abolished by Yeshua or it's still in effect. And if it is still in effect, who's obligated to follow it? This is a little bit of a dicey subject. Okay. Eminent scholars, Jewish and Gentile, believer and secular, have suggested a wide-ranging set of views on this often emotion-charged topic. Okay. However, before we dive into those turbulent waters, I want to discuss an aspect of Kashrut that is not so controversial. And it is that the Hebrew diet was center stage on the matter of purity and holiness in the Bible. As important as the Torah makes diet, some would argue that Judaism has taken the matter far beyond the rather succinct scriptural regulations concerning eating and has made it a food cult almost unto itself. Yet these laws that we're going to study in Leviticus 11 are important enough that they wind up generally being repeated in Deuteronomy 14, though with a little different emphasis. And so we're going to, in the next few weeks, talk a lot about purity and cleanliness, or rather cleanness, cleanness, right, and holiness. So it is worthwhile to have a review of what all those concepts taken together seem to mean in a biblical sense. I say biblical sense because what I'll explain as we go through this on, on um, uh, kosher diet does not necessarily reflect modern Judaism. Nor does it necessarily reflect doctrinal based Christianity. Right? That is, we're really not going to get into the traditions and the customs. We're going to look at this from a purely scriptural point of view. Okay? And we're going to start tackling all that the next time we meet.